Welcome to Biblical Foundations, a podcast of the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm your co-host, Jimmy Rowe, along with Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. Join us as we discuss issues in biblical scholarship for the church. Thank you for joining us today at Biblical Foundations. Here with me is Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. Today, our guest is Dr. Will Kynes. Dr. Kynes is Professor of Biblical and Religious Studies at Samford University. He's also the author of Obituary for Wisdom Literature, The Birth, Death, and Intertextual Reintegration of a Biblical Corpus, published by Oxford University Press in 2019. Dr. Kynes, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Well, yes, it's, uh, it's, it's certainly great to, to have you. Um, it, it's been a while. Uh, for our listeners, Will, uh, you and I first met in Cambridge while you were, I think, a doctoral student there. And uh, I was on the year-long sabbatical at Tyndall House. And uh, it was a joy to go punting with you on the cam and <laughs> to, to meet your wife, Vanessa, and your young family. I'm sure the children have grown. And even uh, I seem to remember to meet your dad, who has a biblical uh, studies PhD as well. Isn't that right? That's right. In fact, he did his PhD at Cambridge as well. So I've unfortunately been able to kind of walk in his footsteps. So I branched out and did Old Testament instead of New. His PhD was on Matthew. So, yes, incredible. Yeah. Incredible. I've read some of his work. So uh, as we begin, can you please tell us a bit more about yourself, especially your educational background, your research interests? Sure. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I grew up in Virginia, and then went to the University of Virginia for my undergraduate degree. And um, from there, my went on to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary for an MDiv. Mm -hmm. And after my time at Southern, decided to do further studies and went to St. Andrews University in Scotland for a an MLit in theological interpretation of scripture. Uh, and then after that year, decided to move on to Cambridge, where I did my PhD, looking at allusions to the Psalms in the book of Job with Catherine Dell. Mm -hmm. And uh, after that time, I was fortunate enough to get a postdoc at Oxford, at Keeble College, uh, for a year. And then I had a, a one-year full-time post at Oxford after that. Uh, after those two years at Oxford, I went to Whitworth University uh, in Spokane, where I was for six years, and then just this last August, made the move down south mm -hmm. to Stanford University in Birmingham, Alabama, where I now teach in the Biblical and Religious Studies Department. Yes, with people like Paul House and Frank Thielman there in the seminary there. I lectured there once just a uh, beautiful campus and and yeah solid uh, biblical studies uh, program so uh, well just to get the ball rolling for today and to give you a chance to flesh out some of your thinking in in your book you write uh, an obituary for wisdom literature and uh, you know in the subtitle and then in the book you also call for what you call an intertextual reintegration of a biblical corpus, which I appreciate. So you're not just being negative, but also you try to be uh, constructive, uh, showing a way forward. Uh, can you explain to our listeners uh, why this obituary and, and what you mean by intertextual reintegration? Yes, uh, I'm glad that you appreciated the also positive constructive aspect 
of the book because actually that was advice I got from a scholar named Stuart Weeks at Durham. He said, when I kind of shared what I was trying to do with the, the obituary idea, he said, well, people are going to be less likely to adopt uh, the end of one category, unless you at least propose somewhere where you mm. might head afterwards, unless yep. you provide some kind of um, potential positive, constructive move. And so I tried to do both of those in the book. Um, they both had their own difficulties. Uh, in some sense, the, the imagining what things might look like in the future is even more difficult. And I'm even I'm pretty forthright in the book that this is just one idea I'd love for people to continue to contribute to thinking through where we might go from here. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the obituary side of things, one of the things that I think is important to clarify right off the bat, because it's a common question that I get with the book, is the distinction between uh, a genre category and what I call a genre grouping. Um, when we use the term genre, particularly in biblical studies, we often use it interchangeably with category. And so we'll talk about a genre category. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I'm pushing back on in the book is, is the idea that genres uh, are primarily ways of taxonomically categorizing texts, right? Saying this text is this type of text, this other text is this other type of text. Um, and determining in that way what a text is. Uh, in term, instead of using genres as categories that definitively define a type of text, I prefer to see genres as a way of recognizing certain features of a text that that text shares with other texts. Uh, so they're much more dynamic rather than the static taxonomy. You know, you'll have people who will argue, in fact, a lot of biblical scholarship arguing about whether this psalm is a wisdom psalm, whether we can categorize it in that way or not, or even whether the book of Job is wisdom literature or not. And I want to move away from that way of understanding genres as categories. And the reason why that's important to bring up at the beginning is I am not writing an obituary for the idea of wisdom in the Bible. <laughs> I think wisdom is a really important idea in the Bible. What I'm writing an obituary for is this category wisdom literature, which uh, if you could see me, I'm holding up the air quotes with my fingers, um, <laughs> wisdom literature, because that, that category is something that scholars have invented and then uh, imported onto the biblical text. And so it's a construct, and constructs are only alive to the degree that they help us understand the things that they're intended to elucidate for us. And what I'm arguing is that this wisdom literature construct, this category that we apply to the biblical text, uh, scholars are increasingly realizing instead of illuminating the text for us, it's actually obscuring the text. And as soon as it starts to do that, as soon as it makes it harder to read the text well, instead of helping us read the text, then it's dead. It's, it's not doing the job it was designed for. Uh, so that's what I'm trying to do in terms of declaring the obituary. I'm saying this isn't new to me. I'm just drawing together the questions that people have started to raise and showing that the tech, that, that category can't really do the work that we think it's doing. In fact, it's distorting the interpretation of the text that we apply to it.
Now that fits with the intertextual reintegration part because the main problem with the wisdom literature category is it has taken Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, and it's cordoned them off from the rest of the Bible and said, this is wisdom literature, and these texts are defined by their universalism, their individualism, their humanism, their rationalism, their skepticism, these traits that are associated with the wisdom literature category and the wisdom tradition that's associated with it. These texts are not interested in the issues that we encounter in the rest of the canon in terms of biblical theology. So, you know, Israel's covenants, its history, um, God's revelation of his law to his people, all of those issues are not what wisdom literature is interested in. And so, I mean, classically, within biblical studies, the effort to create a biblical theology has struggled with what to do with the wisdom literature. And part of my argument is that that's just baked in from the beginning, because one of the defining features, one of the things in the 19th century that led scholars to create the wisdom literature is they were looking for texts that weren't as integrated with this very national, what they considered to be a nationalistic, particularistic, uh, revelational understanding of theology. They were looking instead for texts that fit better with the philosophy of their time. And that's why they end up associating it with those traits like universalism and individualism and so on, which when you hear them listed out like that, you think, oh yeah, that's just post-enlightenment thought uh, imposed onto the Bible. So what I'm hoping to do with this book is say, okay, wisdom literature as a category um, invented in the 19th century, cordons off these texts from the rest of the Bible, uh, but it's actually distorting our understanding of those texts. Let's leave the category aside, and now let's pursue how we might read Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job if we paid more attention to the intertextual connections between them and the rest of the canon. That's the reintegration part. Uh, and I'm trying to play on the idea that you know, you're born, you die, you go back into the dust, and you get reintegrated into the material from which you came. So um, the can't, that category of wisdom literature was born in the 19th century. It's now recognized to be dead. And now the material from which it came, we can be, those texts can be reintegrated into the broader canon. Mm-hmm. Picking up on that thought, um, as part of your argument, you redefine genre by drawing on theories of intertextuality, networks, emergence, and conceptual blending. Maybe for mm-hmm. our non-specialist audience, can you help us understand genre and explain intertextuality as you see it? Yeah. Uh, so the way that I define genre is just simply a means of recognizing that one text is similar to a group of texts in respect to one or more significant characteristics. That means that you can have uh, a single text that actually participates in a number of different genres, depending on the significant characteristic that you are interested in. Uh, so if we take Job, for example, and it was my work on uh, Job's allusions to the Psalms in my PhD that inspired this whole project on the wisdom literature category, because I was looking at the close connections between Job and the Psalms, and I was noticing that um, there are direct allusions, and not only that, but 
the idea of lament and the form of lament is a significant part of the way that Job speaks. And yet, um, biblical scholars hadn't generally pursued these ideas in the past. These illusions that seemed so obvious to me had barely been discussed. And I realized that a big part of the reason for that was probably because people considered Job wisdom literature and they considered Psalms something else. They were in different categories. And so the category division was actually leading us to, to overlook those connections. So when we think about genre, it's perfectly fine to say that Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes all talk about wisdom a lot. And so in terms of that significant characteristic, it's fine to group them together. But that's not the only thing that Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job are, because Job also is very similar to the Psalms in terms of its use of lament. Uh, even hymn language is used in Job a good bit as well. So in terms of that significant characteristic, we could group together Job and the Psalms as, as one example. So that leads to this more dynamic way of understanding the way that uh, genres work. And what I'm doing there is saying that genre is really a form of intertextuality. Now, intertextuality is one of these multisyllabic words, uh, but it's actually fairly simple in what it's describing. It's just talking about how we recognize connections between texts. And as we recognize those connections, that shapes the way that we read those texts. So to give you one example that should be pretty familiar with people, once the uh, gospel writers use Psalm 22 to describe Christ's crucifixion, suddenly there's been this connection created between Christ's crucifixion and Psalm 22. And that both shapes the way that we read and understand the passion narratives and the way that we understand understand Psalm 22, right? I've read interpreters of, of Psalm 22 who say, you know, a Christian reader just cannot come to Psalm 22 without thinking of the crucifixion because of the way that those links have been made. So we're constantly noticing these kinds of links when we read, and they shape the way that we understand text. So a genre is just uh, a way of formalizing a group of those connections, right? We say, oh, well, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, they all talk about the concept of wisdom. That's the intertextual link between them. And so we can group them together. Or the other example that I've already talked about, right? Job and the Psalms both use lament. Maybe we throw lamentations in there. Maybe we even throw Jeremiah in there because of the confessions of Jeremiah. And we are using that intertextual connection in order to talk about a genre grouping, which helps us to understand those texts. Very interesting. Yeah. So you're, um, you know, talking in literary terms and finding genre essentially as a, you know, as a function of intertextuality, but um, you, you do make a historical argument, don't you? When you, uh, basically, say that uh, that the uh, the wisdom literature uh, category is a 19th century invention, and when you say that uh, there's really no ancient evidence that in biblical times uh, that was a, a meaningful way to to classify certain writings, and uh, you know, the obvious question that occurred to me as I read your book is, well, what about uh, 
the historical figure of Solomon in the Bible. Uh, mm-hmm. Of course, uh, the fact that 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 you know Kings tells us he he he, he uh, God invited him to ask for one thing, and what he chose to ask for is wisdom, and so he became this uh, paradigmatic and prototypical uh, you know epitome of wisdom. Uh, we're told he himself collected uh, thousands of proverbs, uh, and uh, then as a result, certain writings uh, such as uh, Ecclesiastes. Uh, Song of Solomon and, you know, portions of, of Proverbs were either attributed to him or linked to him in some way, not necessarily in terms of authorship, but just in terms of, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the whole ethos of, of, of wisdom. And so uh, is that not a historical, uh, you know, argument that, that, that perhaps uh, there was a sense that, that some of those books uh, found their their origin, you know, in in uh, the wisdom of Solomon. Yeah, th- thanks. That's an important uh, thing to discuss because it's certainly true that you have Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs associated with Solomon, and then you have Solomon himself associated with wisdom. But it's really significant that Job is not associated with Solomon, uh, and yet. Uh, when we come to the modern understanding of the wisdom literature category, Job is included, and generally scholars don't include Song of Songs, which means that when we talk about wisdom literature today, we're talking about something that's different than what ancient readers would have had in mind when they connected texts to Solomon. And so we have a different criterion that we must be using. And what I argue is that it's 19th century ideas about philosophy, which is what leads um, Song of Songs to be dropped out and Job to be included. Now, the other thing that should be said is that, yes, Solomon is presented to us as a prototypical wisdom figure. Uh, But if we read 1 Kings, 1 to 11, which tells the story of Solomon's reign, uh, Solomon is depicted to us in a way very different than the way that biblical scholars today would talk about the interests of wisdom literature. Because when people define wisdom literature, they often define it as distinct from Israel's history and Israel's worship practices or cults and from the law. Um, But Solomon in 1 Kings 1 to 11, yes, he is the wise man par excellence, but he also builds the temple. He also has a chapter-long prayer that he gives at the temple. And even his, his, the way that he receives that wisdom in 1 Kings 3 is presented to us in a way that's very similar to the calling of a prophet. I mean, it's an inspired, God-given wisdom that Solomon receives. And then we see by the end of Solomon's reign uh, that his reign is ultimately judged by whether or not he obeys the law, right? Because he actually, Solomon, in his wisdom, actually becomes a fool because he fails to integrate his wisdom with obedience to God's law. And so if we're going to take the association with Solomon as an indicator of what wisdom was believed to be in ancient Israel and, and associated with these texts, I think it would completely transform the way that we understand wisdom literature because 
um, of the way that Solomon is presented to us in the ancient text. And actually in the book, that's what I do uh, in the chapter on Proverbs, is I try and take very seriously that association between Proverbs and Solomon, but then say, okay, if we're going to do that, let's look at 1 Kings 1 to 11. And in fact, 1 Kings 1 to 11 uses the term for wisdom, chokmah, uh, more often than the book of Job does per word. Uh, so uh, that means if we're going to talk about wisdom literature and we're going to define it by use of the word hokma or interest in the concept wisdom, we really should throw 1 Kings 1 to 11 into the mix. And if we do that, that's going to totally transform the way that we define the wisdom movement or the wisdom tradition uh, within ancient Israel. Along uh, similar lines, uh, what do you make of the way uh, in which the wisdom books are grouped in ancient canons, for example, Proverbs, yep. Job's, Ecclesiastes, is almost always placed in close vicinity. Um, so does it seem that ancient readers saw a connection between these books? Uh, yeah, so I, again, I'm not going to deny that there are connections between the books. I think there certainly are. They, they are similar to one another. What I, what I want to push back against is the idea that that's, the only set of connections that is relevant to their interpretation, or even in some cases, the primary set of connections. Uh, when it comes to ancient canons, uh, there's never that I've discovered uh, a reference to those three books distinctly uh, as wisdom books. We've already talked about how you do see Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs grouped together because they're associated with Solomon, but you don't see Job thrown into that mix uh, to the exclusion of Song of Songs. The other thing that's interesting when we look at these ancient canons is that within Jewish tradition, uh, over time, Proverbs gets grouped together with Job and Psalms in the Sifrei Emet collection, whereas Ecclesiastes gets put in the Megalot with four other texts, which means that uh, at least Jewish readers didn't see the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job connection, even the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes connection as fundamental to understanding those books. They're willing to put Proverbs in one collection and Ecclesiastes in another. Uh, so they're able to see multiple ways in which those texts could connect with others. And then when it comes to Job, Job is actually all over the place in canon lists. So in some lists, he's at the beginning of the histories. In other lists, the book of Job is at the end of the histories. In some, like Josephus, uh, he appears, Job appears to be at the end of the prophet. So Job moves around a whole lot. And so I, I think it would be uh, unfair to say that it's, Job is primarily grouped with Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And I think it's actually really significant that in the primary Jewish list we have from Baba Batra 14b, Job comes after the Psalms and before Proverbs, which is, again, what I'm getting at in my my work and my dissertation was the close connections between Psalms and Job that we overlook because of the wisdom category. Uh, so I, I think actually putting Job after the Psalms and before Proverbs is a great way to understand what Job is doing because there's a sense in which Job is drawing on the Psalms, but also um, bringing ideas from the Psalms and putting them in, into interaction with the kind of ideas about wisdom that we encounter in Proverbs. Yeah, so I'm just thinking, you know, our listeners, you know, um, in terms of takeaway, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I wonder to what extent uh, your book is 
primarily addressed to a specialist, you know, academic audience. And as you mentioned, you you, you react against 19th century uh, German scholarship. But I think, you know, for maybe, you know, an uh, average believer, if you will, they might think, okay, um, there, there clearly is a sense in which uh, the wisdom category is meaningful uh, because in various ways, you know, all those books that are, uh, you know, commonly today grouped uh, in in the wisdom literature rubric, uh, you deal with various ways of understanding life, uh, you know, making wise decisions like Proverbs or dealing with the nature of suffering, Job, or in the case of Ecclesiastes, the meaning of life. And so uh, I just kind of wonder how, how many might listen to this conversation and feel like it doesn't really fundamentally change mm. the way they read those books. So is, yeah. it, is it just possible that, you know, uh, your critique is primarily directed at a certain rigidity you know, within yep. German scholarship, but that on a practical level, maybe a lot of people have already uh, taken that category with a grain of salt and acknowledged there's a certain uh, latitude, you might say, you know, between the different books. Uh, at the same time, there's a certain cohesion between them as well. And so maybe at least on a conceptual level, wisdom still, you know, serves uh, maybe not as a rigid genre category, but at least as a conceptual, as a meaningful category to think about those books. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I really appreciate the question of, well, okay, what's the payoff here? And sure. it is true that my primary audience is other scholars in this book, but I'm writing to them actually with the hope that downstream of scholarship, some of these ideas will become even more clear in the church. So one of the other things that inspired me to write this book was all the, all the way back when I was at St. Andrews and I was just starting this research, I was listening to a sermon series on Job from a pastor that I really respect. But as he introduced the book, he was saying a lot of this stuff that I was reading in um, the critical scholarship about how, well, you know, we have to read Job as wisdom literature, and that means that it's not as concerned in these issues of God's law or the history of Israel or covenants. It's more interested in wrestling with philosophical questions about suffering and the problem of evil and so forth and so on. And what I realized is I doubt that this pastor had read any of the 19th century German scholarship that I was reading, but, you know, these ideas, they slowly trickle down into the commentaries that this pastor was reading and then into the church. And what I've seen is that by not imposing that wisdom literature category, which we may not even realize all the baggage that comes along with it. That's one of the things I'm trying to help people see is how much baggage it has. Um, but instead, um, reading these texts in a more integrated way, we have the opportunity to see new connections and understand how the Bible presents wisdom to us afresh. Also understand the meaning of each of these books, because 
Job, for example, is way more than just a wisdom book. It's dealing with a lot of other questions and putting them in the context, not only of the Psalms, but also of um, God's law, particularly Deuteronomy. And I think Deuteronomy is also playing a strong role in, in Proverbs, for example. So I teach a class on wisdom here at Stanford, and this semester is the first time that I totally re-envisioned how I taught that class. I mean, in light of my book, I kind of had to. I couldn't call it wisdom literature anymore. So <laughs> I called it wisdom in the Bible and beyond. And instead of starting with Proverbs, which is where almost every introduction to wisdom literature starts, I started with Genesis and then moved through to Deuteronomy and then to uh, the, the account of Solomon in 1 Kings 1 to 11. And we had all of that conceptual background before we finally got to Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And what was fascinating about that is by the time we got there, we saw very clearly how when the, those texts talk about what it means to be wise or what it means to fear the Lord, uh, it's, they are doing that in a way that builds upon God's relationship with his people, the way that he has revealed his law to his people, his expectations for them, who this God actually is because of the way that the canon works us through before we get to that point. And so there's a richness that I think we're missing when we treat wisdom literature as something different. And even if I, I do think that people in the church are probably not as beholden to these scholarly categories uh, as scholars may be, uh, but I still think that those categories are influencing their reading. And as they do that, they are obscuring some of the richness of how the Bible presents wisdom to us. And I'll just give you a, a one quick example. Mm -hmm. I, I was listening to a, another pastor who was just, this was maybe last year, uh, did a sermon series on Proverbs where he pursued the connections between the Ten Commandments and Proverbs. And I think that's exactly the kind of thing that I'm hoping that people will do more of in light of my work, is they'll start to see how Proverbs is elucidating these ideas from the biblical law, for example. Uh, and in that way, this pastor was showing how we can understand the Ten Commandments better through Proverbs, and we can understand Proverbs better through the Ten Commandments. I thought that was a, a fascinating way to do it, which I found really helpful. Yes. Well, thank you so much for what clearly is very stimulating, uh, thought-provoking uh, contribution. And of course, um, you know, as a as a non-specialist myself, um, I'm definitely uh, intrigued and 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 uh, pondering uh, what you're saying as somebody who's who's done a lot of specialized work in your doctoral work and and beyond. So thank you very much for uh, for helping us just uh, you know give some fresh attention to something many of us have probably just kind of taken for granted, but. To, to, to end on a on a broader and more general note, uh, Will, you you touched earlier on the idea of kind of uh, how, what do we do with wisdom literature in 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 biblical theology? Um, how do you how do you see wisdom books uh, fit in into the you know the 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 broader scheme of of biblical books? What contribution do they make? How can we properly integrate them into a, 
a full or a whole Bible theology, maybe in a, you know, just a, a few words. Uh, obviously, that's a huge question. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm attracted to the way that um, we see the canon presented to us in the the Jewish order, the Tanakh order, where we have the Torah and then we have the Nevi'im, the prophets who are interpreting the law to the people, and then the writings, the Ketuvim at the end, which I would suggest are unified by their diversity. So we, we have these 13 books that address all different aspects of life. Uh, so Job is dealing with the question of suffering as his lamentations and uh, Psalms is dealing with how to worship and Proverbs is how to pursue success and Ecclesiastes is how to find meaning in life. Uh, and so you can go through those 13 books and, and understand the way that the God's relationship with his people addresses all of life and prepares us for flourishing in all different aspects of life. That That's one way when I'm teaching in my introduction to the Bible class, I, I talk about this. Uh, but I think that there's a sense in which what I'm trying to do in this book is set the stage to come back to these questions of biblical theology anew with less of the baggage of the wisdom literature category shaping our reading. And I'm hoping that future scholars will um, understand how these books fit into biblical theology in new and exciting ways as a result of putting aside the wisdom literature category. So I'm excited to see about what future research may, might bring in that regard. Well, Dr. Kynes, we're appreciative of your work and I uh, want to thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for joining us today at Biblical Foundations. For more information, please visit the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern at cbs.mbts.edu. For further resources, please also visit biblicalfoundations.org. Please join us again next time at the Biblical Foundations podcast.